0: Please uh, turn in your Bibles to uh, Zechariah chapter 5. We've been going through a a study in in Zechariah. He's one of the prophets of restoration that came after the captivity, uh, very shortly after the people were restored to the land. Uh, And the book is really a message of hope and comfort uh, to the people. Uh, It begins the first six verses. with a call to repentance. Those uh, people have to be in the right mood to receive the blessing of God. And, uh, but then it goes on, and the first portion is eight uh, visions. We're going through those. Uh, visions that are expressing God's encouragement to the people. And so it begins by saying that God, and specifically, uh, the angel the Lord Jesus Christ is with them in their lowliness, and they may feel uh, cut off from God, but He is with them. And then the second one goes on and say, whatever the forces against them, greater are the forces at God's uh, disposal, uh, and that He can use uh, to help them in their lowliness. Uh, he goes on then, and, and third vision is a young man with a measuring line, and the point there is what God is going to do is much greater than what they think, uh, that uh, they're to be expanding their vision uh, for how great the kingdom is going to be. Uh, the fourth and fifth, I expressed uh, the idea at the center, these were the sort of the key visions. They deal with two men, uh, one is the, the political leader, and then the other is the priestly leader. And uh, Uh, For the priest uh, to function, he needs to have his sins taken away, and not only his sins, but the the sins of the entire people of God are taken away in one day, and then uh, the uh, political leader is going to uh, see the rebuilding of the temple completed, and he himself is going to be the one uh, that that completes it. And uh, and basically, it's giving the idea that uh, God uses human instruments in the building of his kingdom, but they're also looking forward to the one who would be both prophet, priest, and king, Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate builder. And so there's a promise uh, there of God working. So we come uh, now to uh, vision six and seven, and uh, they're sort of dealing with with a common theme, and we'll be looking at that. Chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a flying scroll. And he said to me, what do you see? I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits, and its width 10 cubits. Then he said to me, this is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. For everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is on the one side. And everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what is on the other side. I will send it out, declares the Lord of hosts. And it will enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name. And it shall remain in his house and consume it both timber and stones. Then the angel who talked with me came forward and said to me, lift your eyes and see see this that is going out. And I said, what is it? He said, this is the basket that is going out. And he said, this is their iniquity in all the land. And behold, the leaden cover was lifted And there was a woman sitting in the basket. And he said, this is wickedness. And he thrust her back into the basket and thrust down the leaden weight on its opening. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, behold, two women coming forward. The wind was in their wings. And they had wings like the wings of a storm. And they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. Then I said to the angel who talked with me, Where are they taking the basket? And he said to me, To the land of Shinar, To build a house for it. And when this is prepared, They will set the basket down there on its base. No, I don't know how often it is now, but uh, as I was growing up, it was fairly typical for uh, women to uh, mothers to uh, clean the house uh, twice a year, to have a spring cleaning and a fall cleaning. They do weekly cleanings, vacuuming, and dusting around, but uh, twice a year they do a deep, thorough cleaning. You know, you. You'd wash down the walls, you'd wash the windows, you'd move all the furniture, you'd pull out the refrigerator and, and sweep behind it. And then you'd go through things. You'd go through the refrigerator and see the things that had mold on it and throw it out, or magazines that were three years expired and get rid of them, or that, that chair that was broken and never got fixed was thrown away, or the clothes that was maybe... Three sizes too large, or maybe three sizes too mar- or too small, you get rid of. Necessary, really, for the thorough cleansing of the place you're living in, to, to do that. To get rid of the clutter, to get rid of the, uh, the dirt and the grime that built up. Well, that's the idea in these two visions. The need for cleansing. The needs for cleansing among God's people. And they sort of complement themselves as they deal with two different areas of cleansing. The first is the area of hypocrisy. That's in the church, there can be hypocrites who look like believers, who often act like believers, but are not. And they need to be cleansed. And the second is, for those who are believers, is the the sin that they have. Even though they truly believe, there's still that remnant of sin that's in their lives that needs to be gotten rid of. And we see that being dealt with in the second vision. And so the the first vision, uh, verses 1 to 4, number 6 as we count them from the beginning, is really a warning against hypocrisy. God sends out a scroll. And it's a large scroll. It's 30 feet by 15 feet. And it has some writing on it on both sides and that would be a little unusual. They usually only wrote on, on one side. But sometimes if there were shortage of scrolls, they would write on on two sides. You may remember how they, they did that. They would unscroll it until they found the place. And so you can read in Luke four, Jesus going in the synagogue to, to preach, to teach, and what does he do? He's on the Isaiah scroll and he finds a place. There's a particular passage he wants, and so he has to go and look at it until he finds that packet, that passage. It's in Isaiah 62, and he reads verses 1 and 2, and then he speaks about its meaning and how he's really the, the fulfilling of it. Now, this scroll has really one short, short sentence on the front and one on the back. And so you could write in very big letters about the one who steals, or the one who swears falsely. And as such, you would be able to be seen by everyone. So we would know what that message was. And, I think sometimes you've maybe been to a football game and there's a banner trying behind an airplane and it says, Eat at Joe's. Or maybe you're at the beach and there's an airplane and it says, Rachel, will you marry me? Bill. (laughs) I didn't do that in case you are wondering. But it's there to be seen. And so it is here. And it's a message for hypocrites. Cursed is the one who steals. And cursed is the one who swears falsely. And then verse 4, by my name. So it's not even the swearing, but it's swearing falsely in God's name. And these would both be part of the Ten Commandments. The stealing would be part of the second law that deal with our interactions with one another. It would be the Eighth Commandment right in the middle, the ones that talk about how we're to deal with, with each other. And the swearing falsely by name. my name would be, be dealing with the, the Third Commandment, right in the middle of the first tablet that talks about how we're to deal with God and our attitude toward God. And they're addressed to people who would have come back from the captivity. Who outwardly would have seemed good. These were the Jews who wanted to be back in their homeland. Who had begun to to rebuild and have the altar up now and want to rebuild the temple. They'd be circumcised. And yet there's something wrong. And as you go and look at the other writers from this time period and, and a little bit on, Ezra, Nehemiah, Malachi, some are intermarrying. Some are marrying foreign wives. And that's becoming a problem. Some, forgetting the oppression that they went through in the captivity, are beginning to oppress others, the poor in the land. Others have stopped giving to the Lord. And the priests have to turn to sort of secular work because they're not being supported by the people of God. And some are just plain apathetic to the things of God. On the surface, everything looks okay. But inwardly, their hearts are wrong. Their hearts are not seeking after God. They're not loving him the way they should. They're not seeking to honor him. The Apostle Paul really writes about these kind of people in Romans 2, 28 and 29. For no one is a Jew who is merely outwardly one, nor is circumcision outward and physical. Now, the outward appearance isn't what's important. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, and not by the letter. And so the apostle is saying, we just don't judge by the outward appearance, by somebody saying, oh yeah, I believe in God. I'm seeking to honor God. It's what's going on in their heart. Do they have a right heart toward God? Do they love God? Do they seek to honor God? In the same way, we could say the same thing today about Christians. A Christian isn't one that's been baptized, doesn't go to church every week, but it's one who inwardly seeks for God, wants to honor God. And how many would claim to be Christians but hypocrites? If, they're, if they want a divorce, even though God says you're not to seek a divorce, they want what they want. And so they divorce for wrong reasons. Who? Neglect the worship of God so they can be out golfing or following their sports team or whatever it would be. And that can be distressing. As you look around and you see hypocrites in the church and it comes out about a, a pastor who's committing adultery and you're wondering what's going on. An elder who's supposed to be very concerned about the poor, and yet is getting himself richer and richer all the time. Well, this scroll, this scroll has two curses on it, and they're really the, the word in the Hebrews, os. and it reminds us back of Deuteronomy, where the people are on Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, and Blessings and curses are are, are placed upon them. And it's really oath. And if they obey the oath, then God's blessing rests upon them. But if not, then the curses rest upon them. And it's saying that those who are hypocrites who dishonor God's name, who steal. The curse will come and rest on their homes. And notice, as you would look down at at verse 4, it remains in the house and consumes it, both timber and, and stones. Now, timber is is pretty easy to consume with fire. But stones are almost impossible. You have to have a fire that's super hot to really consume the stones, to to make them worthless. And so it's implying there's going to be a complete destruction. That those who are just outward in appearance, they're going to face a severe judgment of God. Now, we all struggle with sin. And so it's not talking merely about those who would struggle with sin. But it's talking about those who are hypocrites, who don't love God, who are not striving to please God, engage in, in shameful things, even as they claim to be Christians. They will be judged. And so this sixth vi- vision assures us that's going to take place. And the second point is the seventh vision, it's uh, verses five through 11, is for those who are genuine believers, who have this problem of sin, is that sin is going to be dealt with. And so as you would look at your life and and see there's sin, as much as you seek to honor God and follow after him, you see there's still sin creeping into your life. And there's this woman in a basket, And she symbolizes our sin and our wickedness. And it's removed from the people of God. It's transported away by uh, two women with uh, strong winds, wings like a stork that are able to to carry it and lift it up to heaven and get it out of the way. And in the Hebrew, that word basket is ephah, you know, sort of like our bushel. And so a, a normal sized woman really couldn't fit into it. But this is a personification. And so this woman represents wickedness. And that term is used of wickedness, of sin of all sorts, it, it can be used of religious sins. You know, neglecting the worship of God and neglecting the sacrifices, even be engaging in idolatry. But it's also used of uh, our sins with respect to one another. When we steal and when we defraud and when we lie. It's also used of sins that are morally repugnant. Child sacrifice and certain other sins. And it can be used of sins that really nobody sees except God. Sins in our heart, sins of attitude that nobody else knows. And so sin in all of its forms and it's identified as the the iniquity, in all the land. All the sins that are part and parcel with God's people. And what happens to them? As they're embodied in this woman, she's taken away. The sins are taken away. And just as the hypocrites are removed, our sins are being removed. They cannot occupy and hold sway on our hearts if we're a believer and on our minds. You know, it's interesting the picture that this woman is in a basket with a heavy lid, so she can't get free, so she can't wreak havoc on the people of God. And she's a. Lot of, they are to be taken out of the land. You know, as I read that description, it reminds me of a, a show I saw a long time ago. It was a city in, in the southwest that had a rattlesnake round, round up. And so they'd all go out and, and try to find as many rattlesnakes as they could, and they would find hundreds. And some of them were skilled enough that they could just grab the rattlesnake with their bare hands. Others used long poles. But they'd bring them into the center of town and there was a large cage there for all the rattlesnakes. And when you got your rattlesnake there, you'd quickly open up and throw in the rattlesnake and close it as fast as you can. Because you maybe had 100 or 200 very angry rattlesnakes there. And they wanted to get out. And they wanted to do harm. And wickedness wants to get out. And it wants to do harm. But it can't. Because God's in control. And where is this wickedness taken? is taken to the land of Shinar. You can find a reference to the land of Shinar in Genesis 10. Later became known as Babel and then Babylon. In the next chapter, in chapter 11, you have the building of the Tower of Babel. And so it signifies human beings and their rebellion against God from the very beginning. And there she can hold sway in unbelieving hearts. And they can build a house, a temple to her there and follow her ways. But not so with God's people. God's people are given new hearts and new desires. They're no longer enslaved to sin. They still fall into sin, but they have escaped wickedness because God's in control. And through Jesus Christ, sin has been defeated. Well, The third point we need to ask is, where and how were these visions fulfilled? They're encouraging visions, that the hypocrites will be dealt with, the remaining sin in our lives will be dealt with. Was it in Zechariah's day? Was it in Christ's day? Is it in our day? Or is it left to the future? Well, as what is true in many parts of Scripture, the fulfillment has both an already and a not yet. And already and a not yet. And so we see already hypocrites are often forced out of the church. And so you could look later on in the, in the time of Nehemiah and the hypocrites were shown and called upon to change their ways or were excluded. Jesus, as he talks to the religious leaders who really didn't know God, calls them hypocrites and a brood of vipers. And today, there have been cases of uh, you know, priests and pastors and elders whose sin has been exposed. And they've been shown to be hypocrites. And the same is true in in terms of the the principle of wickedness. Their sins are being dealt with. First and foremost in Jesus Christ on the cross... By his death, and then in our lives, through the process of sanctification, as we believe and are transformed to the image of Christ, we sin less. We become more like him. Not perfectly, but we do have victory over sin and sins. So we have a new heart that follows after God. And yet in both these areas there's the not yet. There's the complete fulfillment. And so where is the, when is the complete fulfillment of the hypocrites being outside the church? It's at the bend of revelation and the new heavens and the new earth. When Jesus separates the wheat from the tares, the true believers from those who are not. And he tells us in Matthew 7 that there will be those who say, Lord, Lord, didn't we not prophesy on your name and cast out demons your name and do mighty works? And his response is, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Those who are hypocrites will be left out of the kingdom of God, will be left out of heaven. And the second half of the chapter will also find its fulfillment in heaven, where, where the Christian is pictured as sinning no more. We well, won't have any desire to sin. We'll have no need to repent. Instead, we will live in unbroken fellowship with God. Sin will be decisively removed from our lives. What a glorious day that will be. When we will not desire to sin, have no desire. To sin. Let me suggest uh, two applications. First is to examine your heart. Especially ask, could I be a hypocrite? I think the young people, there's a danger. You grow up in the church. You're with fellow young people. You want to fit in. And so you go along. But you know in your heart there's something not right. And that could be for any of us. This is really a somber warning. To be sure you have a right heart. That you're not doing it because of what your parents might think, what others in the church might think. You're doing it because you know God. You know Jesus Christ. And you want to honor him with your life. Second, as we deal with sin, how quick are we to repent? To be grieved at the sin in our lives. No, yes, we, that we will all sin. It doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian, whether you're a pastor, an elder, a deacon, a seminary professor, But Christ has dealt with all those sins. And here and now we struggle. But how we should long for that day when there will be no more struggle. And we should endeavor to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. Which means Dealing with sin straightforwardly, not excusing it, not covering it up, but confessing it and finding the forgiveness that's in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, give thanks for these visions of how you cleanse how you cleanse your people. One of the things you do is to cleanse the hypocrites out of the church. Sometimes it takes place in this life as sins are exposed. The character of a man or woman, boy or girl's heart is exposed. But we know that it will be perfectly dealt with on the day of judgment. When there be those who will say, Lord, Lord, did I not? And they will be seen as hypocrites. Father, I pray that there be no one here, young or old, who would fall in that category. And thank you that as we daily re- recognize that we're sinners, that we have a new nature, a new new heart, and yet we so often fall back into sin that you've dealt with that as well. That right now you're cleansing your people from sin, making us more like Christ, and we look forward to that day when there will be no more sin in our lives. Thank you for that sure promise of unbroken fellowship with you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.